We're back. Episode 363. Cheryl Horn, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm good. For those of you who may have missed the last couple of weeks, hopefully that's not you. Hopefully you tune in every week. Who would do that? Who would do that? Who would identify yourself? Yeah. The last couple of weeks and this week and next week, we are engaged in something a little different. I wanted to answer 24 questions in honor of 2024. Cheryl's going to ask the questions. We have broken them into categories. And by we, I mean Cheryl. Uh, the first four, the first six questions were around clients. That was episode 361. Episode 362 was about projects. Episode 363, this one's going to be about what, Cheryl? We're covering business. So again, there's overlap between all of these topics, but we're going to focus on running your business today. Ooh, okay. Very exciting. Uh, we're going to answer six questions. And before we do that, let's do some announcements. Sounds good. Well, <laughs> as the... What announcement? Yeah. As, as these episodes air, uh, you are away. You are traveling right now. So uh, things are a no, little... No, I'm not. I'm right here. No, right here. <laughs> when um, air, though, I will be far, far away in a beautiful land called South Africa. My first time to South Africa. Yeah. Very That's going to be amazing. Yeah. We'll follow along on, on social. Yeah. I think I can actually share some pictures this time. I was in Vietnam, you know, a couple of months ago and I wasn't... I, I shared almost nothing because I didn't want my clients yeah. to know it was a waste. Yeah. <laughs> but this time my projects are in such a place where I'm like, I'm away, but it's all yeah. good and everybody's fine. Yeah. Things are, things are running. That's what systems will do for you. Exactly. Uh, um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but happening uh, this month, coming up on February 21st, we're first. 21st. Oh, I can't edit myself this time. We're on video. Um <laughs> Coming up on the 21st is our next BOD live, and we're going to be talking about cultivating strategic partnerships with business of design business partner, uh, Portia Williams from the prototype. So um, that's coming up on the 21st and then KBIS on the 29th. So you're going to be part of a, a panel discussing the lighter side of running your interior design business, sharing some stories from uh, job sites, interactions with clients uh, to, you know, bring light to this sort of intense business that you do. There are some funny moments that happen. Sometimes funny after the fact, not necessarily as they're happening. <laughs> That's true. I'm thinking of one where I fell down the stairs. I was trying to get away from these clients and I literally went, you know, head over heels because uh, I was just so eager to get away from these weird clients. But anyway. <laughs> wow. I, I feel like there's not usually a story that I haven't heard before. I don't think I've heard about you falling down stairs. This story is so old. I bet you haven't even heard it. I bet you, see, now you got to go to KBIS to hear the story. I'm not going to give it away. <laughs> I think, are we going to turn the KBIS conversation into a podcast? I hope we do. Working on it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Got good. It. If not, I'll just wear <laughs> the mic and we'll just, you know, download it on the quiet, on the QT. <laughs> yeah. All right. Sounds good. Should we jump into it? Yes, but Are don't forget to save October 26th for Business of Design's 20th birthday High party. Point. You're invited. High yes. point. couple of ways you can yeah. join in. You can join Business of Design for learnings and tours of High Point on that Saturday and then finish with the big party and VIP seating and a little gift from us. Or you can just show up for the party. It's The party's going to be free. There's going to be some fee associated with the tours. We haven't figured that out yet. We have to work that out. Uh, 
or you can just show you up. Time to plan. But the bottom line is October 26th, you need to be yeah. in high point. Be at high point. And as we have more details, we'll be sharing that on the podcast and on the website. Yes. But I do not want to have a birthday party and be alone. So I want like a million. Yes, we celebrated our 15th there as well. Yes. A million might at, be a good high point. in terms of the number of people. I'm not sure how many people the location holds, but we want it full. We want this to be an epic yeah. party. And we'll make yeah. sure it's your while. Anyway, okay. So looking forward to celebrate. Woohoo. All right. We're going to talk first question. business. Question number one. Business. I'll keep it easy. What's the favorite line in your contract? Oh, oh my goodness. That's, that's my favorite line in my contract. Uh, such a good question. You're stalling. I thought that would be an easy I'm one. I'm totally stalling. Yeah. Thank you for hiring Kimberly Selden Design Group. That doesn't count, right? Um, <laughs> uh, I would say, uh, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm completely blanking on this. Okay. I would say I'll pick this line because of how much it helped me over the years. A retainer in the amount of blank is due with the signing of this contract and will be held to the summation of the project. That's roughly the wording. Yeah. Uh, blank because it's going to be a different number depending on the size of the project. The reason I love that line is because I was so afraid of questions that involved money that I hoped every time I went to a new consultation that the client wouldn't ask. But of course, that's ridiculous. Of course, clients are going to ask, what is this going to cost? And a retainer is a big part of the chunk of change you're going to need to get the project started. So, uh, and by the way, if, if that's for an hourly fee contract, if you're doing a flat fee contract, instead of the retainer is, of blank is due upon signing of this contract, the flat fee of blank is due upon signing of this contract. Either way, those lines are interchangeable. One is for hourly fee contract. One is for flat fee contract. Those are my favorite lines because... By writing that number on the blank, which I often do at the consultation, I leave something typed in the contract, a very big number typed in the contract. And if I need to lower it, I can cross it off and lower it and initial it. But having that number written, typed in the contract allowed me to say the scary thing, I need $60,000 from you right now to get started, right? It allowed me to say it in oh and then as I, I I was able to hide behind my contract and I began to realize that my contract gave me something that I call paper courage. By having the number there, I didn't have to wing it. I didn't have to stutter and stammer. I just read the contract. There it is. A retainer in the amount of $60,000 is due upon signing of the contract will be held to the summation of the project or a flat fee in the amount of $60,000 is due la 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 la. So I, I would say that that's my favorite line because that did the most for me in terms of teaching me how to be a confident business person and getting me to protect the assets of my company up front. And it just becomes another policy. It's, you can read it like any other line. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't, you know, we say it all the time, read the contract line by line. I don't know how to be more clear, but most people don't do it. It will transform you into the business owner you want to be. You will gain confidence from reading it line by line. You will become the words on the paper. The first time I read my contract, I was like shaking and I didn't feel confident at all. But the fifth time I read it, I was a completely different person. I was transformed. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, 
yeah. So I'd say and, that's and one thing just to to build on that, uh, a lot of designers who are new to business of design or not using the BOD contract have a lot of legalese where they sometimes oh. stumble over the sentence or it's like 12 pages long because of everything they had lawyers include. Yeah. How long is your contract and how long does it take you to read? These don't count as my questions. This is just building. <laughs> <laughs> These don't count. It takes me under half an hour to read my contract. I think it's four pages. And I will say this. There are times when you hire a lawyer and you should hire a lawyer to review a contract. And that lawyer says, hey, I, I get why you don't want to have a lot of legalese, but we want to put in this one clause, which is legalese, written exactly in this way. It's important for the following reason. Great. Include that one clause. But following that one clause, immediately explain what that clause says in plain language, right? You know, the, you know, heretofore the parties, la, 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 explain exactly what it means so that a third grader would understand it. And I know this from personal experience because I once had to take a client to small claims court and I had a judge who was so lovely and I, I was lucky. I, I wasn't lucky. I won the case. It was wonderful. But he explained to me, if your client doesn't understand what's in your contract, the, the judge or will always find in favor of the consumer because they'll feel in some way they were taken advantage of. They're not mm -hmm. going to feel sorry for you, the interior designer, who's probably driving a fancy car. And, you know, they've all had renovation projects and they all think, you know, you're retiring off their project. So, so don't give them any reason to not side with you. Don't, you know, make sure the consumer or your client knows exactly what they're agreeing to. And they can't say, I didn't understand. That's the problem with legalese. Uh, there's no, pro I have no problem with lawyers. Everybody should have a great lawyer. I hope you never have to use one. I barely ever had to use one and I'm thankful for that. But when you need one, you need a good one. And because people buy our contract from all over the world, of course, you're going to share it with a lawyer, but don't gut it just because your lawyer has a different idea about how you should run your business. Stick to that contract and get your lawyer to add whatever locally they need to add to protect you, but just make sure you explain that legalese. Yeah. Yeah. And then the overall policies within there, we do have members around the world using the contract as is, even if wording has slightly changed because of their location, the policies themselves work. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. we 20 years ago, we couldn't have said that because we didn't know. I had no idea people were going to be buying the contract in Ireland or Germany or Sweden or whatever. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, but today we can say literally thousands of people yeah. are are using our systems and yeah. they work. So you should too. Yeah. yeah. What is the first change that you'd recommend to somebody who is overwhelmed with their current business? and want to start implementing systems. They may already have some systems in place, but they don't formally consider them. It's not a written down system. Where do you start? Oh boy. A lot, a lot of new members join business of design in that position where it's like, even the BOD seems overwhelming to tackle because they're still knee deep in projects that are not running smoothly. Um, they don't have the systems in the back end. How do you start? How do you take those first few baby steps to slowly improve? So if I were in a position to start at step one and implement step one, that is by far the best way to go. Like if you got nothing figured out except for how to run that consultation, you're pre-qualifying, you're qualifying, you're, you're running the consultation, reading the contract at the concentration, asking for the check, 
That's huge. You've got a project, right? Um, step three, you could immediately implement. It doesn't, it's not that hard to implement step three. You just have to convince yourself you can do it. Step four has a lot of moving parts. If you are in the middle of projects or you're halfway through near the end, you're not going to be able to introduce brand new strategies and brand new boundaries and brown, brand new rules. The clients won't go for it. You've trained them already. It's too late. My mother, uh, may she rest in peace. I miss her all the time. It was a little Southern belle. And she said, honey, you have six days to train your man like a dog. And then they'll do exactly what you teach them. So she, by that, she meant like, don't let them get into bad habits, you know? Um, and uh, that's terrible for guys listening. I apologize. You know, what can I say? She's from the South. That's what she thought. Um, <laughs> you want to, if you're in that position where you have projects and they're already kind of going off the rail, you're going to just get through them. You're not going to be able to go back and say, oh, I should have done it this way from the beginning. It's probably not going to work. So I would say start at step one. So that's one one way you could do it. For me, the way I had to do it is I had to change the money. So, well, I didn't have 15 steps. So for me, the first thing I changed was everything involved with money, how I build, how often I build, how, what my collection policy was, what was my policy in the event the client didn't pay their invoice? What was I going to do? How was I going to stop work in order to get paid? Those were my most pressing problems because I was working a lot, but not getting paid. So there's two ways to look at it. Start at the beginning with, a, with you know, be ready with step one for the next person who phones you, because that's when step one begins. It begins with the initial contact with a potential new client. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it is to tackle the thing that is ruining your life, which might be the money side of the equation, which was true for me. And I'd say that's the majority of designers when they're implementing start with every new project that comes in. So that they really, they might make tweaks to existing projects, but you also have to follow the terms and contract that you may already have in place with those clients, you can only change so much. Yeah. So there may be tweaking, but in terms of implementing, um, start with the next project that you take on. Exactly. So you can start at the beginning. Yeah. Good. Next question. What's the most common way that designers are leaving money on the table? Ah! Let me count the ways. I'll let you come up with more than one this time as well. Oh my, there's a, a question. Have a okay. How about this one? Charging too little. How about this one? Charging enough, but not tracking your resource all of, of your time. And then, oh, as a bonus, not billing the client for all the time you spent on the project. So, I mean, you want to make more money? Stop fudging your log sheets. Stop. Um, editing what you write down. So this happens a lot. Somebody goes out and they needed to find a new countertop for a client and they go to the slab place and they did, couldn't find the right one. And so they had to go to another one. And so instead of taking an hour, it took two and a half hours because the driving, oh, I can't build a client for two and a half hours because it's not their fault. I couldn't find a slab at the first you know, quarry or whatever. Yes, you can. And you should because it legitimately took that long. Where another thing, like I might source all the lighting for a whole house top to bottom in three hours. 
Like it doesn't take me long to do all my lighting. I could source it all in, in, in two and a half, three hours. So fine. I log that. But when it comes to something that's hard, I make some excuse and I just don't even write it down. So I'd say, if you really want to make more money, begin to write down every single second you spend on a project. You'll learn where your inefficiencies are, because if it's, if it's taking you 12 hours to source lighting, something's going on, you know, you'll learn. I can speed it up if I blah, 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 blah. Um, so that I would say is a big place that people leave money on the table. Allowing clients to do their own purchasing is a nightmare for a thousand reasons. I won't even get into it. It makes me insane, but that's leaving money on the table and allowing clients to work directly with the trades. And so that you're not managing the project and you're not getting procurement fees on services and labor. Uh, that's a, that's a big way you leave money on the table. And already I, I know, I know, I know, I know what you're saying. It's not legal where you live. I get it. I get it. Um, there are workarounds and you should find a workaround because, uh, you, you, if you're going to be on the job site, that's where your risk and liability is when the construction and the labor begins, you need to get paid. So there's, you know, a thousand and one ways you're leaving money on the table. Well, and the thing with logging your hours, it doesn't, you're already doing the work. Yeah. So you're not doing any different tasks than you normally would be. But I think that for a lot of designers, you're so busy that you're only thinking about that one individual task where half an hour, an hour doesn't seem like a big deal because it's just that one task. Yeah. But uh, in the course, Logging Billable Hours, we give a lot of examples where if it's two hours here, well, if you do that for every project every month, what that adds up to and how dramatically that changes your bottom line at the end of every month, even a scarier number if you look at it at the end of your year. We actually did that. Remember, we did this in a yeah. boss group. Um, yeah. Finally, we convinced one of the boss members that you have to track your hours better. And she realized mm -hmm. she left something like, I'm going to say $140,000 on the table at the end of the year. It was yeah. it's not big I mean, numbers. It's huge numbers huge yeah. numbers. We, we lie to ourselves when we don't keep track of that stuff, right? We lie to ourselves. We also lose, leave money on the table. I know I have to move on to the next question, but okay. denying our clients the opportunity to say yes to something expensive. So for example, I, I said, I think on the last show that this last presentation I did last Friday, uh, the clients had initially said they wanted to spend 300000 to which I said what I always say, which is absolutely, your budget absolutely yeah, will but, cover mm -hmm. everything you want. I'm going to price your wish, wish list. And then you tell me what you want to buy. So it came out to $1.2 They're going to do everything. So that tells you how they knew that 300000 was ridiculous. Um, uh, but the fact of the matter is there were things in the $1.2 a couple of things, not everything, but a couple of things that were big splurges. And they went for it because they were important elements that are going to make the project better. So sometimes what happens is we go, oh, the client says they only want to spend 300000 or 50000 whatever the number is. So I'm not going to show them this. I'm only going to show them this, you know, sad, mediocre, tragic thing because that fits their budget, right? Let the clients say no. Show them the great thing. You know, if it's if it's a really big splurge, I will have a second option, which is more affordable. I, you know, I kind of prepare for that. But yeah. three times out of 10, they'll go for the splurge if it's really going to make a difference. So don't get me started. Ways, client, ways you're leaving money mm -hmm. on the table. We could do a weekend uh, seminar on that. And maybe we will. <laughs> That's a really good topic. We do need to focus on that. Um, 
Uh, okay. Next question. What was your most recent aha moment? Oh, uh, okay. So many podcast interviews, whether it happened on the job, what's something that's recently like, huh? Well, I don't know how recent this is, but this was a big damn deal. So this is the one that's coming to mind. Really, I should have had this at home moment many, many, many years ago, but here it is. The retainer, if you're working on an hourly fee contract, should be the same size as the flat fee if you're working on a flat fee contract. Uh, yeah, I don't want to get into too much detail about that because I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of explaining why our flat fee system is the best system there is. But bottom line, whether you're doing an hourly fee contract where you need to ask for a retainer or you're doing a flat fee contract where you need to ask for a flat fee, the number should be the same. Well, that was that was totally weird that my my internet just went down. So anyway, um, we were talking about that retainer and the flat fee being the same. We do things different. We do our flat fees differently than uh, most people out there. So that involves- yeah. You can actually make money using them. Yeah. You, you can make <laughs> a lot of money doing it. Most profitable project last year was a flat fee project. It was by far the most profitable project. It was amazing. Yeah. Okay. What was that? Was that number four or number five? That was number four. Your aha moment was number four. So we're on to number five. Okay. What? So I think finances is, is a big one. We got to touch on something finances. So what is, what part of your finances took you the longest to really understand, but now it's like your go-to number to look at or to monitor to whether it's comparing projects, whether it's comparing year over year, what took you the longest to understand, but now it's like your go-to, these are the numbers I look at. Oh, what a good question. I would say profitability by category. I didn't look at that for a long, long time. In other words, do I make the most money on hardware or do I make the most money on fabrics? Do I make more money on Broadloom? Do I make more money on area carpets, fine area carpets? Do I make more money on um, commercial projects and uh, some of the like ordering a million chairs when they're very inexpensive or do I make more money profitability per uh, percentage wise on two incredible custom chairs in a residential project. So just paying attention right. to those categories is really exciting. And it's it's caused me to pay attention to who I'm choosing as my vendors, who my suppliers are and what what right. what we're doing for each other. It's got to be a win-win. It can't just be, you know, me buying from them and they don't give anything back. Um, I would say that that's a, a really big one. Yeah. Because I think that's where a lot of designers struggle uh, understanding their PL and for any task, whether it's marketing or finances, even if you're delegating it, you need to understand it. Yeah. You need to be I aware mean, of it. Yeah. The the year over year or the year comparison, previous year comparison, that's my favorite profit and loss one. I'm always looking for how was last year in this category? How was I doing it this this month last year? How did that work out? And I'm always uh tweaking and saying, why am I behind this year? Why am I so far ahead? What's happening? Yeah. Uh, that's another one for sure. I love all the finance stuff and I really didn't like it before. And I would say the other big thing is to to start thinking about wealth. I never, oh my God, I never dreamed we'd talk about wealth and business of design. I mean, most business classes for interior designers treat it like it's some menial job that you'll, you know, be able to eke out a living instead of, you know, it's a career that can be extremely profitable and not just for people who are famous, not just for 
You know, in fact, I would say I know a lot of interior design professionals on TV who don't make good money in real life. They don't have systems running their business and they're great on TV, but they're not earning, you know, a million dollars annually from their interior design company. So you don't, you don't want that. Well, and it's also the, the type of projects you take on. One thing we're introducing with our boss groups is looking at your profit per project. So if you do a variety of different projects, whether it's summer full build, summer decorating to yes, no, your, uh, your profit margin per category is, is great. Especially if you primarily do decorating, some people do renovation and don't take it all the way to the end and do those final decorating. And there's huge, you know, money being left on the table there, but it doesn't, when we start having those conversations, it doesn't seem like that's a standard thing that accountants will introduce you to looking at your numbers per project. No, yeah, when I get people phoning me for coaching, they say, I'm thinking of just doing kitchens and baths. I'm like, great, let's look at your profit and loss kitchens and baths compared to, you know, living rooms and dining rooms. It's like often their books aren't even set up in a way that we can even track that. And I'm like, before you jump into this new category, thinking this is going to be the answer to all your problems, are you sure there's money there? Right? Yeah. So anyway, good. That was a good question. Yeah. Well, on the last one, we've sort of already touched on, but why is business training so important for design professionals? You know, our slogan on the very first book was what they don't teach you in design school because it's not. And yet over 80% of the industry is self-employed or you get into design knowing that you want to run your own firm. That's the goal. And you don't come out with that portion of the education. Yeah. You know, the, the bottom line is schools still don't teach what we need to learn. They just don't. And we've talked forever about doing a textbook and that could be something we're going to tackle in 2025. Um, I think our education is sadly lacking. And mm -hmm. I think that interior design designers are often dismissed and sidelined and ignored. And I was listening to this great podcast the other day, I think it was called Criminal with Phoebe Judge. I like Criminal. And she was talking about the very first EMTs were born out of necessity. I'm going to totally screw up a lot of the details, but it was something like it was from, from Philadelphia. And what was happening is the people would have a, a, some kind of a cardiac event. And between the time they had the cardiac event and the time that they could get them to the hospital, they would die. And so they had this largely black community and they organized this community to be drivers who would go and pick up the person who had the cardiac arrest and they would train them in CPR, which was brand new. And they would keep them alive until they got them to the hospital. And during the podcast, they talked about how ill-treated these guys were you know, they would show up at the hospital, the doctor would say, who are you? And what do you think you're doing? And yeah. he's like, well, I just kept this patient alive to bring him to you, you know, and so, lives. so that's what we're doing. Ambulances yeah. were born out of this group. I think they were called the freedom fighters, or I don't know what they were called. Anyway, it was an amazing podcast, but how they were treated by the medical profession reminded me a lot of how interior designers are treated by businesses, by business community leaders, but also maybe by the architectural societies, and even in a way, our own societies. We are not taken seriously. And that's why we're not taught business because we're not, they're not thinking of us as a business. They're thinking of us as a little hobby you do when you have a lovely home and your husband makes a good living. It's like such a 1950s mentality. Mm -hmm. And 
the 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 doctors of course were really upset initially some of them that they were training these non-medical doctors non even uh, even university graduates these medical procedures even though it was working beautifully there was a lot of backlash to stop it to stop allowing them to perform cpr and to put in ivs and even perform tracheotomies even though it was it was immediately save lives. There was a lot of backlash against it. And of course it managed to come through and now EMTs are highly respected, you know, medical professionals. And I think that that is the case with interior designers as well. I think we are probably a lot of creative industries. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I think for too long, we've accepted that um, we're just going to go over here and eke out a living. And that's just not the way it should be. So I'm, I'm excited for you all to run a business that's going to turn you on in terms of, you know, the kind of money you can earn and what that means in terms of your lifestyle and the good you can do in your communities because you have that additional money and the confidence you're going to feel because you've built this yourself. You've built your own empire yourself, which is, which is amazing. So yeah. And you know what I was sharing with uh, Janine recently, and I'm sure we probably had this conversation when you first hired me, but like in high school, applying for schools, I applied to school for two things, interior design and business. I got into both. And when it came to making the decision, it was like, if I go through for interior design, I wanted to do space planning and floor plans. I didn't want to do everything else. I didn't know that you could just do that. But at the end of the day, it was like, if I go through for interior design, I have one option. But if I go through for business, I can apply it to anything. And if I still want to apply it to interior design, I can go back and do that. So having a job straight at a university, I didn't go back to school for it. But a couple of years later, my phone rings and now I get to apply business, all of this business training to interior design. And it's all applicable. You know, you marketing, accounting, strategy, management, planning, like you need to have this in place. So it's it's yeah. cool for me to like, I still get to help run interior design businesses. It's just not my own. <laughs> Love it. We're so lucky we have you. We're so lucky. We're so lucky we have you. But again, even if you're outsourcing those tasks, you need to understand them. You do. Yeah, you do. It's a complicated business, right? And that's what we're in this together. And uh, hopefully come and join us. Come hang out with us. We'll rub off on you. I promise. <laughs> yes. What do we do? Yeah, we get, do that, get that business education. Did we do it all six for the business? We did. That was the last one. So that was wrapped it up. We got one more part left to go. And we're going to be talking about staff and your team. Oh, very exciting. All right, Cheryl. Take care. Bye. See you next time. Bye, everyone.